0: A reading from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, this is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than me, because he existed before me.
1: I'm Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. Good morning to you all. Uh, You know it's a serious one because I've brought a a little selection (laughs) from my library. (laughs) These are my favorite kind of sermons. As I mentioned, my name is Jonah. I am uh, the lead pastor here at Zao, and I'm really excited to be in this series, Rebuilding Faith After Deconstruction. So many of you here in this room, so many of you here with us online, so many of the faithful, seeking, believing people of God are doing incredibly difficult, painful, and terrifying work deconstructing the toxic elements of the faith that we were given or raised with, so that we can be made whole, which is the will of God. But we can feel really lonely when we do that, and it can feel very scary to take apart or challenge those things upon which we have built our lives. Last week, we talked about a metaphor I'd like to revisit, which is the Jenga tower. (laughs) That if we are sitting in front of our Jenga tower, looking at some bricks that feel a little loose, looking at some structures that feel a little precarious, we want so badly to tap on them, but we wonder what will happen if we take too many of those toxic pieces out. Will we be left in, in a mess, in a heap of rubble, with nothing to build on? And the answer is no. No, we will be in that mess with a heap of rubble with a lot to build on, and we do that together. We who want to, because no one has to, but we who want to can rebuild a healthier, more holy faith, and we do that together. And today we're talking about the scriptures, because one of the toxic things that too many of us have been taught, whether or not it is in our awareness, is that scripture is a stand-in for God, And we treat scripture like God to be worshipped and adored. And that is a huge, huge problem. Now, I've always loved scripture. I brought one of my favorite Bibles. And you can tell that the way that I love things is not to keep them museum quality. (laughs) And I've always had this love for scripture, this fascination with scripture. I've always trusted and been told that it is a pathway to deep relationship with God, a pathway to knowing God, but also somehow this living, breathing thing that that functions as a kind of ritual to which I can go to the text and I can pray and read and the Holy Spirit can meet me here and now and reveal things to me in this moment that might have been different for me the last time I opened that same text. I have always loved this collection of books. But I've never been particularly rev- uh, reverent towards the book itself. This binding is held together with four different kinds of duct tape. And honestly, I haven't even had that bi- this Bible that long. <laughs> when I was in middle school, I had a Bible not dissimilar to this, and I was a nerd then as I'm a nerd now, and so I would bring it around with me from time to time. And I remember having it in school one day, and in the midst of getting other books, throwing it on the ground under my desk. And someone near me was horrified. Oh my gosh, that's the Bible. And you're putting it on the ground. Uh, (sighs) Be ready to be struck down immediately by God. And I was like very (laughs) confused and fascinated by it because the meaning that I got from the scripture was so separate from the book itself. And, and I didn't understand revering the actual physical object in that way. Now, if that's one of the ways that you relate to scripture is actually by keeping your stuff museum quality, like, good on you. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But it actually made me really curious. I wanted to kind of interrogate that. Like, is this a sacred object that we need to, like, be weird about? And, and I determined for myself, like, no, I actually want my Bible to be covered in notes and stickers and Post-its and I wanted it to look well-worn and loved but that however it appeared didn't really say much about what was inside it or what my relationship was to it because I was searching for God in the text and trying to treat the text like it was not God and over time when I was in college I actually found people who were like super into treating the Bible the same way they were like yeah the 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 binding itself, the paper itself, that's not what matters. It's the words on the page, and we should study it. You should cover it. And, like, actually, it became, like, a mark of holiness whose Bible was, like, the most, you know, who had the most colors, the best, like, legend of, like, you know, pink means this, and, you know, whatever, right? And so people would really get into this. and And I found, though, that though I thought that there was kinship there, people really wanting to study and get into it. They loved the Bible in some ways that I really loved the Bible. But they also had a different relationship to the words. Their relationship to the words was a little bit more rigid and authoritarian and inflexible. And they taught me to treat the words themselves as though they were God. And it was a lot harder to dispute that feeling, because when I could say like, oh no, God doesn't care if this book is on the desk or on the ground, sure. But if, if the words on the page held not just a pathway to God but the only pathway to God, an infallible pathway to God, then it felt like if the text or the interpretation was toxic or harmful or abusive or just wrong, that suddenly challenging the words on the page meant challenging the word of God. And as some people, through that passage we just read at me, they would tell me that the word was God. So who was I to disagree with God? And so suddenly, this pathway, this book of stories, this book of letters and poems, this incredible collection of writings of our spiritual ancestors became a trap. It became something authoritarian and dictatorial, something I couldn't be in conversation with, but I had to only sit at the feet of. And that felt really, really scary. But now it was the only legitimate pathway to knowing the God who made me, the God who I've known since I was a child. Except the Bible is not God. And that is something that I have had to deconstruct. It's something that I invite you to deconstruct too if that is something that you have been taught. So when we talk about the word, and so many, so many of us or the the communities that we have been spiritually raised by will refer to the word with the capital W. The word. And when they say the word, what are they talking about? They're talking about the Bible and they're talking about God. And this is a problem because the Bible is not God. But the scriptures, when the scriptures themselves refer to the word, what are the scriptures talking about? And here's where we have this beautiful passage, this incredible poetry from the beginning of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, I am familiar with some of the Greek here. But the reason I'm familiar with the Greek is not because of my Bible studies. I didn't learn this in church, I learned it in philosophy school. (laughs) Because it turns out that a lot of the things in the scriptures exist outside of the scriptures too. And they have meaning. I know, weird. Super, super weird. But that word that we translate as Word, capital W, in the Greek is logos. Logos. And logos in Greek philosophy means a lot. It's like a big one. It's like this thing that can't really be translated because it's such a concept. It's like a thing that you could take a class on. Logos. And what I had learned in my Greek philosophy classes is that it was this concept of universal divine reason. It is the word from which we get logic, it can also be translated as reason or reasoning, but it's more than that. It's, it's the order behind all reason. It's the structure and impulses of logic. It is the principles of meaning making. It is one part right brain, one part left brain. It is relationship and order all at once. It is truth. It is meaning. And my Harper Collins Study Bible, which is a different one than that, but has great annotations, they explain it in their notes on this passage by saying that Logos is the divine principle of reason that gives order to the universe and links the human mind to the mind of God. Now, this is a concept that existed outside of the Bible. It was Greek philosophy, not Christian philosophy, not Hebrew philosophy, It was Greek philosophy, and so people were looking for for a name for this experience they had, this principle of reason, everything that underpins the universe linking humanity and God. And the author of John said, I know what that is. I know the Logos. The Logos has been here from the beginning. The Logos is with God and is God. The Logos came down and put on flesh. And people didn't recognize the Logos, but he is here for you and he is with you, and all things come into being through him. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word, and in that sense, the Word is God. But don't get it twisted. This isn't just writing on a page. This is the logic undergirding all of humanity, all of the cosmos, everything created, this is the reason, the order, the meaning, the relationship behind all things. And so when we, in our ignorance or in our shortcuts, end up thinking about that, talking about it, teaching about it, as though it is simply the words on the page of Scripture, we have lost the entire beauty, the entire logic, the entire logos behind That part of the scripture itself. When we read the Bible, it is a means of connecting with God. It is a means of tapping in to that meaning, that logos, that Jesus who is God, who is with us, who brings all things into being. But when we mistake ourselves, when we mistake the text, when we mistake God, and when we look instead of To Jesus, to the Logos, to that meaning, to that relationship, and instead to those little more controllable words on the page, we lose it. We lose it all. And it becomes hollow and empty and dangerous. Now, we've been taught to worship the Bible or to confuse the Bible for God for a lot of reasons, and one of them as I've already alluded to, is because it's easier to control people with words on a text than to control people through their relationship with the divine logic of creation. I have more that I can do to manipulate the words on the page of the text than I can manipulate your intrinsic relationship to the God of all creation who brought you into being. And so, it is to the advantage of anyone who's seeking authority and to be authoritarian to divert your attention away from the relationship you have with Jesus and towards words on a page that they can interpret for you. And that is the sin of the church over and over and over throughout history. And disagreement about the interpretation of the word, the words, has brought us the Reformation, a thousand different splits, different interpretations, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing. We must not mistake the text for God. Especially because, if you were here last week, you know about first and second naivete. First and second naivete is a a set of complicated words that we use to describe a process of knowing, a process of relationship with faith. The first naivete is basically when you get taught what you get taught and you take it for granted because that's how we take in information. Then there is the distance that comes with reason and disagreement and questioning. And then we ascend to a new height, the second naivete, where actually, rather than things being rigid and taken for granted, we actually can start to question and hold contradictions. And it doesn't undermine our faith, but strengthens it. And I apologize, because that was a really fast run through. But the important thing to hold on to here is that in that first stage of faith, the more childlike stage, not a bad thing, just a developmental thing, of spiritual knowing, we more naturally engage things as black and white, as really simplistic, as authoritarian. And it is easy to stay in that place when the churches and teachers around us are encouraging us to stay there, to treat them as the outside authority, and to do the same thing with scripture. To say scripture is black and white, the scriptures say clearly, The scriptures are clear. When I think most of us who have spent any time in the scriptures actually have at least a twinge of like, are they though? Like really though? Clear? Clear? Because they seem pretty confusing a lot of the time. Now the second naivete, the place that we are aiming to go, a mature faith, a developed faith, holds room for complexity and tension, doesn't experience things as black and white, and also doesn't experience authority as authoritarian, but as relational. And so there's room between you and God. There's room between you and your relationship to your community to disagree, to doubt, to question, and those things aren't a threat. They're actually part of the process. That is what we are trying to build toward. But when we are stuck in that first zone with the scriptures, it feels really bad because we are taught that the text is what has authority, not our relationship to God, not our own um, knowing of ourselves, not our relationship to one another, not our obligations to one another, but the words on the page, which can be easily manipulated by the people in positions of power. And we can't disagree with it because they've subbed in the text for God. And so if we disagree with the text or their interpretation of the text, all of a sudden we're disagreeing with God. And who are we to disagree with God? It's dangerous. It's dangerous. But actually the reason that we read the Bible in the first place is because we have a relationship with God, is because we are seeking a relationship with God and we want to go deeper. And we trust that the Bible is a tool given to us by God for that task. Not that the scriptures are the first, last, and only place we meet God, but that the scriptures are a tool in order to deepen our relationship. So, if the Bible is not God, what is it? What is it? A lot of us have been taught a lot of things about what the Bible is, and I would guess that some of you, if you had to just shout out what you had heard about the Bible, we'd hear words like, infallible, right? Inspired. What else? Inerrant. Story. Say again? A story. A story. Instructions. Breath. Absolute. Breath. Breath. All right. So we've got a lot, a lot mixed in there. Not a lot of specifics other than it's right and you're wrong though, right? Right. So some of those inerrant, instructions, those are kind of like, okay, this is what the Bible is. It's clear. It's straightforward. It's going to tell you what to do. And then anything else that feels a little bit murkier just kind of gets subsumed under this like, oh, it's a story. It's a love letter from God. God has some interesting letter components. If this is a love letter, there are some really dry bits. There are some really violent bits. I mean, 14 pages front and back. I'm just saying it is long. It is long. So If we want to interrogate what the Bible is, we actually have to take a step back from what we've been taught. Because a lot of what we've been taught is kind of buzzwords about it, but not actually, like, what is this document? How did it come to us? One of the questions I get asked most often is, like, who decided what's in the Bible? Because the unspoken answer to that in churches, a lot of the times, is God. God decided what's in the Bible. Except that there were, like, actually a lot of committees And in fact, there are still a lot of committees. And every translation is made by committee. And like, there's a bunch of human beings involved with it too. So we like to pretend that like back in the day, human beings were inspired magically by God to write perfect words on a perfect page. And now, human beings are flawed, so we're not involved in the process at all. We're just there to like read what God did a long time ago without any human intervention. And that doesn't really stack up, does it? So I think we need to either say that now we are just as capable of channeling the divine-inspired words of God, always, or to say that, hey, maybe those people who wrote that stuff down were just like us. They were complicated and messy and they got some stuff right and some stuff wrong. The committees that put it together were complicated and messy, got some stuff right and some stuff wrong. We could land somewhere in between but we have to be clear about what we're saying. Because if we just avoid those questions, then we are leaning into that black and white authoritarian model that actually, like the real problem with the Jenga tower is that it is built on nothing. It is built on avoidance. It is built on saying, ah, the answer is always God probably. (laughs) Right, like it's turtles all the way down. This is not gonna hold up. So what is the Bible? I'll tell you what I believe the Bible is. I'm reading this from the What We Believe section of the Zhao website, but cards on the table, I did write it. So (laughs) truly it is what I believe. (laughs) I believe, we believe, that the Bible is a gift from God crafted and curated by a community of ancestors of the faith. The Bible is not a single book, but a library containing works of many genres. These poems, letters, myths, histories, legal documents, apocalyptic writings, and more, create a rich tapestry of God's wisdom as received and understood by the people of God throughout history. We interpret these scriptures beginning with the teachings of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels by intentionally reading from the margins, that is, beginning as Jesus did with the experience and needs of those who have been harmed or excluded, most centered. The Bible is ancient. The Bible is weird. The Bible is holy. Like, I just want you to to pause for a second and think about how old this document is. Like, we talk about, you know, 2,000 years ago, that's the New Testament, but like 1,000 or so years more, is some of the other important writings. Like 3,000 years ago, I want you to project that into the future. I want you to think about the year 5,022. And what might feel a little different then? (laughs) Like like, we thought there were going to be hover cars like five minutes ago. But, like, a lot has changed, right? Even since I've been born, the internet has totally changed how we live and move and talk to one another. We've become cyborgs. Like, most of us have, like, these parts of our bodies that we can't be separated from that are machines that, like, if they end up in another room for too long, we get a little weird. (laughs) Like, that's happened in my lifetime. So think 3,000 years into the future how different things are going to be. And then have the respect for the text to know that that is how far in the future we are from when some of this was written. A lot changes. A lot of meaning changes. Which doesn't mean that there isn't ancient and eternal truth. But it means that it's going to look really different and sound really different and not conform to our expectations. And we need to meet the scriptures where they are at least as much as the scriptures are going to meet us where we are. The Bible is complicated and weird. It contains contradictions and differing opinions. Now, I know everyone's bent out of shape about mistranslation. That's one of the things you encounter here first. Is like, okay, so you're just talking about mistranslation, right? I'm like, I get it. I get it. We want to find a way to have problems with the text while upholding the fundamental internal sacredness of the text. But the way we talk about mistranslation is as though there is a perfect version of the text that we could get if we were just to translate it correctly. As though there are errors that could be corrected, and if we corrected those errors, the whole Bible would make sense. But translation is just one very technical aspect of something much broader, which is interpretation. All translation is interpretation. One of my classmates at that philosophy school did his thesis as a a translation. And I remember um, reading his introduction. He was translating a German philosopher from German into English. And he said in his introduction something to the effect of, like, there is is no direct, there's no such thing as a direct translation. The difference between dog and der Hund is always going to be there. Because they are different languages, they are different contexts. And whether I choose to translate it dog or hound will have different implications to English readers. It will never be the same. There will always be a distance there by translation, an interpretation, a choice made with every word and phrase. This is one of the reasons I'm so glad that we have so many interpretations of the scriptures into English and why I routinely, in addition to looking at the original Greek or Hebrew, will just look at a bunch of English translations to be like, well, what do you think of this? But all of that is always there. And time, time matters as well. Like I said, we're talking about these enormously different contexts, ancient contexts versus now. And I want you to think about that context, that difference, Again, but in terms of language, I want you to think about the difference between the way millennials and boomers, many of whom are still alive, millennials and boomers, use the word literally. (laughs) Right? It is literally opposite. (laughs) So like, if the meaning of the word literally can change that much across two generations, Think about how much intention it takes to understand meaning across thousands of years. And let's talk about contradictions, because those are in there as well. Contradictions of information, contradictions of opinions and teachings. One of my favorite things to start with, let's start at the very, good, very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We have two creation stories. Anybody here, like, surprised that there's two creation stories in Genesis? Or have I talked about this so much that you guys are on board? (laughs) There are two different creation stories in Genesis, and both of them go into a lot of detail, and they're like, first God did this, and then God did this, and then God did this. Except that those lists contain different items in different orders. So literal seven-day creationists have a lot of mental gymnastics to do to reconcile those two different lists. And if you say, like, okay, cool, you know, whatever, that's Genesis, that's, like, more metaphorical, it's more poetry, like, that's the Old Testament. Then we hop to the New Testament. We're like, okay, Jesus, we have historical record, Jesus existed, cool, 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 we're learning about the life of Jesus. Also the Gospels, like, that's what we trust, the Gospels. So we look to Jesus. But in the beginning of the stories about Jesus, in Matthew and in Luke, there's a section a lot of us skip over, because it's super boring. It's all the begats, so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, right? It can be very hard to pay attention to those sections. But if you do, you'll notice they are two different lists. Some parts are the same and some parts are different. So it's not even like this list and this list and maybe they're talking about two different lineages. No, it's like this list and this list and they kind of go like this. Our genealogies are not matched up from one gospel to the next. And then, in addition to different information that we get in the scriptures, which maybe are intending to prove different points, right? And that's what I would argue, just like if, you're, if your heart's doing, getting a little too fast here. I just want to tell you that like, I actually don't think that's a problem in Genesis or in the New Testament. I think that the authors are trying to communicate different things, and they're doing so effectively. But it feels scary when everything has to match up all the exact same way because the Bible is supposed to be clear. The Bible is supposed to be inerrant. And how can two different genealogies with different people be inerrant? They can't. Not Not the way we've been taught to think about it. And then you have the differing opinions. One of the most classic, Paul and James disagree in the scriptures disagree so much that Martin Luther was just like, forget James. Nobody needs him. Ban him from the Bible. Because Luther was team Paul. So Paul is really big on being saved by grace through faith, right? That's probably a phrase if you stuck around the church long enough, you've heard. Saved by grace through faith. Spoiler, the evangelical church, also a fan of Paul. So... So in Galatians, Paul gets like really into it, right? So he's like, hey, you're saved by faith, not works. He gives Abraham as an example. Abraham was faithful and called righteous. And then a couple books later in the book of James, James writes his letter and is like, Paul. He doesn't say Paul. It's implied. It's like a little (laughs) passive aggressive. (laughs) Like Paul, obviously. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And we know that he's engaging Paul directly because he goes on specifically to talk about Abraham. He's like, was Abraham not justified by his works when he offered his son Isaac? And so what we are seeing is a disagreement in the Bible. Now, I'm not telling you this to lose hope. I'm not telling you this so that you throw away your Bible. I'm not telling you this so you think that the Bible contains nothing for you. What I'm trying to do is remind you of what the Bible is. The Bible is human communication. And all human communication, no no matter how divinely inspired, is complex, it is layered, it is contextual, it is limited, and it is messy. And when I get into this with people, a question comes up a lot. And it's a question that i relate to from the core of my being it is a frustrated and frightened question that says why would god give us a bible that was so confusing and my honest rebuttal is to say like hey i hear you i want you to examine your life for just a second i want you to think about your relationships i want you to think about your own mind I want you to think about creation and nature. I want you to think about your body. Is any part of that straightforward, linear, simple, black and white, or easy to understand? It's not. I think that there are other answers for why the Bible is allowed to be confusing, and we'll get into that in a minute. But if nothing else, the Bible being complex and layered and confusing, all of that is extremely on brand for God's creation. Right? Like, as an artist, complex, layered, contextual, limited, messy is pretty much the vibe of God's whole oeuvre. Like, that's what God does. And it would be weird if, in addition, God was just like, oh, and here's this, like, compl- this is, here's a car manual to go with my complex and infinite work of art. <laughs> it's cool. It's not confusing at all. It'll explain everything. It's fine. Like, that's not... That's not how our relationships with each other work. That's not how our relationship with God works. So why would that be how God relates to us? Why would a gift to us be so disconnected from our nature and from the nature of relationship? And so I think we need to stop thinking of these characteristics as errors, as though something malfunctioned, as though something either could be fixed or should have been fixed if it were to be holy. And we need to start wondering if this messiness is intentional and a gift. If contradicting perspectives, contextual meaning, and the bleeding of culture, including cultural harm and sin, are features of scripture and not a bug, then maybe rather than pretend that these differences and disagreements aren't there by doing extraordinary mental gymnastics, suspending our reason, maybe we can just start asking why. What does this teach us? How does it invite us to go deeper into our relationship with God, to self-examine? How does it invite us to be made new? Now, let's return to the logos, the logic behind all of this the order behind all of this, the meaning behind and through and in everything, putting everything in relationship, humanity and the divine is Jesus. Jesus is the reason we do any of this and it is the reason that, that this process is trustworthy. It is the reason that scripture is trustworthy for the task with which it has been given to invite us into a deeper relationship to God. Not to be God, not to be black and white, not to be a car manual, to, but to provide us with the groundwork, with the history, with the lessons of our ancestors, to give us space to tell stories and ask questions, to demonstrate to us what it is like for heroes of the faith, for leaders in the church to disagree publicly and openly. It gives us a space to see the error of our ways, how we can be freed from captivity in one moment and go on and and become the domination system in the next town over. We talked earlier this year through some of the shortest books of the Bible in a series called Brief, and we had to go through some really troubling stuff that's attributed to Paul. And in that series, I argued that the scriptures contained the works of Paul the revolutionary later works that were sort of Paul the Moderate, and works after that attributed to Paul that were actually counter-revolutionary and completely going back on what Paul had said. Now we might ask, why? Why would God let that into the scriptures? My answer then and now is so that we can see how a revolutionary idea, how a revolutionary teaching can be overtaken and co-opted by the powers of oppression and evil in two generations. These are the catalogs of our ancestors. They are a gift. They are given to us. They are love letters. They are also warnings. They are instructions. Some of them are wrong. Some of them disagree with one another. And that might sound terrifying. Because in that first structure, that first naivete, where we are taught to be black and white, where we are taught that authority is outside of us, where we are taught to just sit down, shut up, and be told what to do, we don't have what it takes to discern meaning and truth. But that is not where we are intended to stay, friends. We are intended to wrestle with the text. And the scripture says that itself. It gives us a beautiful story of one of the heroes of the faith wrestling with an angel. That's where we get that really popular phrase, wrestling with the text. And we go through this so that we can hold the mystery and complexity, so that we can disagree with one another as we journey towards truth. And the logic underpinning it all is not the words of scripture, but the word, which is the logos, which is Jesus Christ. We are called to do this, and we are given everything we need. And you may say, how? How am I supposed to do this? Jonah, I don't have all day to read 19 translations of scripture. And like, it's cool, because I do. (laughs) You may say, Jonah, I am not a Greek philosopher. But that's okay, because someone is. We may look at the creation story and say, oh, well, how am I supposed to make sense of this with science? I'm not an astrophysicist. And the answer is, w- you may not be, but there are astrophysicists. We are not intended to do this ourselves alone. Scripture is confusing when we look at it from a singular vantage point. But that's not how Scripture is supposed to be viewed. And even in Jesus' day, that is not how Scripture was viewed or intended. Culturally, it was understood. So many of our texts that we read here of Jesus and the words of Jesus, he's saying in arguments publicly with other religious leaders at the temple. They're debating the meaning of the scriptures. And it wasn't like Jesus was like a real wild card and he was the only one and everyone was going, like, people caught on because what he was saying was really powerful, but that was actually the nature of relationship to scripture. And we can have that again. We can have midrash. We can have holy interpretation. And that interpretation can be communal. What we see Paul and James doing, disagreeing, the Bible shows us we don't have to suspend our reason and patchwork those contradictions together. We learn from it. And we say, what does it mean to believe and disagree, to believe and have doubts and questions? We can have a relationship with Scripture built on our relationship with God and held in our relationship with community. And when we have a relationship, a give and take, a mature relationship with scripture, a lot changes. I have a podcast, a little plug, it's called Jonah and the Peacock. And it's part of a spiritual practice for me, honestly, because when I, I I love the scriptures so much, but I know that I have been inundated with one very narrow lens of interpretation as we all have. Dominant identities have been able to dictate how we interpret the scriptures. And so this podcast is just a practice of mine to have conversations with people with marginalized identities who engage with the scriptures from their own perspectives. And I invite them to speak into my life and anyone who's willing to listen to tell us what the scriptures mean to them. Um, and for me, that's about holding the relationship with scripture in community. And I really appreciate, um, in season one, one season already came out, season two is in, in production right now. And one of my guests, Elle Dowd, she said this about scripture. She, she described her close relationship with scripture and how having a close relationship allowed her to push back against scripture like you can a good friend. She said, when you have a relationship in your life that you're not quite sure about, like, are they going to leave me? Are they still going to love me? It's really hard to have conflict or tension because you're not quite sure about the relationship. But when you have a friend or loved one that you really know and you really trust, it's okay to disagree and push back. And you can even maybe have some tension but you know you're going to hang in there with each other, and that's how I feel about Scripture. Is that I feel like I get to know the Bible well enough that I get to talk back to it. And I was able to say, okay, I reject this part. This is oppressive. Or, time to reframe this. Or time to reclaim this, and totally subvert it, and flip it on its head in a way that's liberatory. You can have that kind of relationship with Scripture we can build that kind of relationship with Scripture. And it feels very, very different. And so I invite you to honor the Bible, to trust the Bible, not as God, but as a gift, as a collection. In season two, in this, you know, these new interviews that I'm doing for season two of Jonah and the Peacock, I've ended with a new question that's become a really important one to me which is who are you reading scripture with? So if scripture is, is a gift to deepen your relationship with God, but it is best held in relationship with community, who are you reading with? Now that could be your Bible study, your small group, but for a lot of us, because we're not all Greek philosophers or astrophysicists, or because we're aware of our own privilege, our own limitations in, in our perspective, we intentionally read with people who are writing books on it, dedicating their lives to it. I wanna share with you a couple of people that I read the scriptures with, a couple of books that I think are really helpful if you're looking for a place to start. The first one is the, is the most accessible and least controversial. It's Adam Hamilton who is a mega church pastor in this denomination and tr- doesn't say things that would alienate his 20 some thousand member congregation. <laughs> And so, like, this is not super controversial. What I love about it is he does an an incredible job of explaining a way to approach Scripture that allows you to identify what's contextual and no longer true, and also to identify what was never true that is in the Bible, which feels like a completely radical thing to do. But he has done it in a way that's completely mainstream. So if all of this is feeling a little too freaky for you, I really recommend you start with Making Sense of the Bible by Adam Hamilton. Another one that I love, if you're trying to connect to a love for scripture, if you are like me and you love storytelling and finding meaning, if you would like the Bible a lot more, if we admitted that most of the stories should start with the phrase, once upon a time, read Inspired by Rachel Held Evans. Her love for scripture is so palpable. And I really relate to it, and it helped me reclaim why I love scripture in a way that's totally separate from some of the church garbage that taught me to hate scripture. Inspired by Rachel Held Evans, I really recommend it. If you want some of the mechanics, if you're like, wait a minute, I really do want to know what the Bible is, then I really recommend the scholar Peter Enns, He's got a couple of great books. One of them um, is What We Get Wrong About the Bible. But this one is called How the Bible Actually Works. I apologize, I don't have the cover on it. How the Bible Actually Works by Peter Enns is a very accessible, really, really well-researched and well-articulated understanding of the origins of the Bible. And uh, I I relied on some of it um, for this very sermon, so I really recommend that. And finally, if you're like varsity level, I want to get into it, and I'm okay with sitting with the contradictory and difficult parts of the text, and I really want to know how some of this gets really, like, nitty-gritty and and gross. Anything by Will Gaffney. (laughs) Will Gaffney, um, I meant to grab the womanist uh, midrash. Couldn't find it in time, and so grabbed uh, this, which is um, a a lectionary reading um, book that she's compiled, a women's lectionary for the whole church. But Will Gaffney is a scholar that I look to a lot when I'm trying to trouble my interpretations of the text and understand them from a different vantage point. So, I, uh, as I always do when I get to talking about the Bible, I, I've, I've lost track of time. And, and I, I will yield the floor, I promise. But I just want to leave you with one final reassurance. If the Bible is scary because it's not perfect, just remember it doesn't have to be, because God is perfect, God's love for you is perfect, and like that's actually the foundation. And, and I said this in a post in the squad this week, if reading the Bible is triggering right now, if reading the Bible is not functioning as an effective pathway to God, put it down. It's not the only pathway to God. You can come back to it. You can hear all of this information, feel a little freedom, nudge that Jenga block a little bit, and then walk away. It will be there. You can come back to it. But you don't have to sit with this text. It is not the only pathway to God. And because it is not God, it can actually be an obstacle to spending time with God. So if you're having a hard time connecting with God through the text, one faithful response is to put it down and find a different way to connect with God. One is music. We're about to do that. Spend some time with music. Spend some time with nature. But this is not the only way to connect to God. And don't let it become an obstacle. And and finally, you don't have to do this alone. And if the only time you encounter the Bible is when you come here and hear me gush about it, great. We can do that in the safety of community. You can hang out in the living room afterward and talk about how wrong I was, and that's great too. I'll, I'll be the James to your Paul. We can have it out. Notice how I'm James there. All right. Let us pray. Good and holy God, we thank you for hanging tight with us through all of this. You are a God of messy and weird and complicated things, and we hate that sometimes. But it is how you have made us. It is how you have related to us. And God, we do thank you for the wisdom behind all of that, for the logos, for the logic, for who you are, Jesus. God, we pray that you would protect us that you would honor us as we search for you, and that you would teach us to honor our own journey, ourselves, and one another. God, may we lift one another up. May we lean on your word, but only insofar as it brings us closer to you. God, you are good. May we trust in your goodness and be changed by it. Amen.